0: Good evening, listeners. It's April 30th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. on a Sunday that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget cobb
1: And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs to study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Patrick Bennett from Dr. Jeff Stone's lab in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology, and he's studying the genetics of a fungus-causing disease in Douglas fir trees. Hey, Patrick, how are you doing?
2: Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. And can you tell us a little bit about your research?
2: Yeah, so I guess I'll start with just describing a... how Swiss needle cast has recently become a problem in the Douglas fir timber industry and in native Douglas fir forests on the western slopes of the, of the coast range uh, throughout Oregon and Washington. About the mid-1980s around Tillamook, Oregon, uh, foresters started to notice just brown and yellowing chlorotic foliage in their Douglas fir trees and started to notice very slow growth rates. And Um, this is
1: really impressive because along the Oregon coast range is one of the most productive areas in the world for Douglas fir. So to see this decrease in growth was really weird.
2: Yeah, yeah. and Douglas fir is is mainly planted so widely just because of its fast growth rate and the high quality of the timber. And so to have something uh, that's slowing the growth rate and uh, by some measures affecting the timber quality of the Douglas fir itself um, and also just the economic well-being of The timber industry uh, and this really, uh, you know, important part of the economy around here. So it's definitely a disease that that people started to worry about. And the interesting thing was that it started to emerge in in within the native range of Douglas fir, whereas previously, um, starting in about the 1920s, it was recognized as a major disease in Douglas fir where it was planted off-site. So they would take uh, they would take Douglas fir outside of its native range, plant it in Europe, uh, all over New Zealand, places like that, and it would pretty much get hammered with Swiss cast.
1: And that makes sense, right? If you take it outside of its natural environment, it doesn't do well. Um, but now we're starting to see it in where it typically grows, where it's always been.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's an interesting phenomenon this this uh, idea of off-site planting and I'm I'm assuming it just has has it's sort of a combination of of an altered climate, a climate that the tree is not adapted to or that any really any plant can exhibit this off-site planting issue. And so if you move to a place where it's not adapted to the climate increases stress of the tree and then becomes more susceptible to um, insect and fungal diseases. And, um, there's a lot of different cases where that happens. It's not just with Swiss cast, but.
0: Yeah. That's interesting because in a sense, the fungus and the tree host were co-evolving in the Northwest where it's natively found.
2: Yeah, totally. And, and, uh, that's, that's why it's really interesting that it's become a problem in the native range of Douglas fir because I guess the thinking goes, um, again, with a lot of systems and not just with Swiss casts, when you're talking about fungal pathogens and their plant hosts, um, the general idea is that if they've been co-evolving for longer periods of time through sort of geologic or evolutionary history, uh, the host develops some sorts of uh, mechanisms of tolerance or adaptation um, that confers resistance to the fungal pathogen or insect pathogen or whatever it is. And so to have this native fungus emerge in, you know, native Douglas fir forest with a tree that it's presumably been co-evolving with for millennia, um, that really is is sort of alarming to a lot of people. And although it doesn't cause outright mortality of the tree host, it's a really interesting, sort of, case study in, uh, in in lots of different areas, like like fungal evolutionary biology, for instance, and a uh, really interesting plant pathology case study as well.
0: Now, what I find interesting is that this is particularly in a narrow band along the coast range, and what specific factors are involved in that? Why only this narrow band?
2: Yeah, that's that's something that uh, they notice doing these aerial surveys. So they fly over uh, at pretty low um, low altitude with a with just a prop plane, and they have people in there looking out the windows for signs of Swiss so they're looking for thin foliage, chlorotic foliage and mapping it uh, with like a tablet or an iPad or something. And what they notice is that the, the most severe disease and really all of the visible, visible symptoms of the disease occur within this very narrow band along the, the uh, Western slopes of the coast range. And um, it seems to diminish with increasing distance from the coast and this is a really interesting phenomenon, it's, and it's most likely just explained by climate, some combination of climate factors that are really conducive to the fungal growth, um, to the sporulation process. Spore dispersal requires water, um, so there has to be some, some level of leaf wetness. And this spore, spore dispersal really occurs about May through July and maybe into August every year. And That's starting
1: tomorrow. That's, well,
2: <laughs> it may have already started, it may and have it's, already started. <laughs> it's obviously got a fluid sort of uh, uh, start and finish. But anyways, uh, yeah, this process definitely requires some leaf wetness. So you would imagine that uh, for this time of year to have high humidity um, and mild temperatures, nothing too hot or dry, you're, that kind of constricts, I, I think that's kind of restricting the disease to this very narrow band on the coast range. But this is also, if you look at standard vegetation map. This is the uh, Sitka spruce vegetative zone. And
1: I'd I'd like to get into that more later. But to put an idea on, even though we're talking about a relatively narrow band, it runs north-south. It is a large area. And it's uh, it's suggested that about a million acres is affected in Oregon and Washington. And this disease is also estimated to cause economic losses of $128 million per, per year. So even though it's a narrow band, it runs really far north and south, and it's no trivial thing. Um, but let's get back to the point you just made. We are now planting Douglas fir kind of everywhere because it grows really fast. It's not super picky, uh, and it's really high-value timber. There's a lot of applications, but like you mentioned, the location that we kind of find the this disease most prevalent, this Goldilocks zone, was the sitka spruce area. Can you explain what that means?
2: Yeah, I think um ultimately what that means is that uh if you walk into and this is just my interpretation of it. I, I'm not sure that this is really factually uh technically correct, but we'll go with it. We'll run with so it. So <laughs> I would imagine that if you uh, if you're within this sitka spruce vegetative zone, the reason that it's it's um you know mapped this way on on vegetation maps if you walk into an, an average stand there unmanaged stand, obviously, you might expect to find more Sitka spruce by basal area or something like that, or a or number of stems per acre or whatever it is. You might find uh, Sitka spruce to be more prevalent in that zone. But also, um, Douglas fir is not a, a major part of that that uh, ecological vegetation community anyways. Um,
1: so it'd be kind of like the, one of the reasons why we don't find Ponderosa pine along the coast range. It's just not ecologically suited to this area. Uh, but for Sitka Spruce, that narrow band is
2: kind of the prime
1: spot for Sitka Spruce to live in.
2: Yeah, totally. And you don't, you don't really find Sitka Spruce very prevalent outside of that zone to the east, for instance. Uh, mm. Although it, it uh, exists along a, a north to south gradient pretty far down into California and all, obviously up to Alaska and things like that. Um, but anyway, so, so this is not an area where Douglas fir is naturally a dominant part of the vegetation community and we've sort of uh artificially manipulated the system in a way that Douglas fir is a major part of the community just because it's it grows fast and it's valuable and things like that that we already uh you know touched on and so yeah it's a really important area for timber production is this um is this narrow band in the coast range but now it seems like growers are going to have to switch to uh, something, something else. Just really due to Swiss needle cast, they're going to have to find alternate species to plant. A lot of, them, a lot of people have considered planting Sitka spruce, which mm-hmm. would be pretty ideal as far as um, growth in that area is concerned. But economically, it's not as valuable. And mm-hmm. I don't think it grows as quickly as, as Douglas fir. And the other options are um, uh, Western hemlock, Lots of people have switched to planting hemlock. It does really well uh, throughout that region, and there there are a few uh, pests and pathogens of hemlock, but none of them have really uh, started on this epidemic mm. scale yet. And there's also western red cedar, but uh, deers find that particularly palatable when it's first <laughs> planted. So it's hard to get it hard to get it past that that young stage of of just planting seedlings, and uh, they have a lot of problems with. Years eating it, obviously. So. It's
1: like cookie crisp for kids. You just can't keep, them, keep it away from them.
0: <laughs> One thing I think is interesting about this Swiss needle cast is that it damages the tree, but it doesn't kill the tree all the way. And what impact um, does this necessarily have on um, just determining the impact?
2: Yeah, so it is a little bit harder to gauge um, on a wide scale. Uh, because it's and and also there's not quite as much interest in a disease that doesn't kill trees outright. It just sort of causes a a slow decline. And because uh, the current year's foliage, you know, becomes infected during the sporulation period, but it doesn't express the disease until the following year. And by then, there's new foliage that has emerged. So there's always going to be one year of healthy foliage on the tree, um, which in some cases, might be enough for the tree to survive, Uh, but it also, um, you know, stresses the tree, and things like drought can have much more of a big impact when there's only one year of foliage on the tree to begin with, Um, or something like frost, if that damages some newly emerging shoots um, and all of the rest of the foliage has been lost because of something like Swiss needle cast, or even, you know, competition, crowding, and things like that in stands, Uh, leads to foliage loss because just a lack of photosynthesis and and, um, sunlight reaching through a really dense canopy. This is
1: an interesting distinction because this has implications from a funding side of things. So Technically, the fungus doesn't kill the tree. It kind of just takes off armor and takes off its resistance to drought and wildfire, but it doesn't technically kill the tree. But I'm curious to know, since it doesn't technically cause the actual death of the tree, what are the implications in terms of trying to find research funding for this type you know, this type of work?
2: Well, I think, I think it's interesting, you know, um, from a sort of basic academic side of things, you know, the way we study, um, the fungal side of things, population genetics and, and just very fundamental fungal biology, um, things like evolution and speciation. But from the applied side of things, uh, when you're talking, you know, things that are the interest of, uh. You know, the U.S. Forest Service and, and big funding sources like that are, are generally things that are more crucial. Hmm. Um, so things that cause outright mortality of trees are, seem to be much more fundable and things like that. Or, or if you have a, a threatened plant species, tree species, well, etc. We can really
1: point to that, to that one thing and said that was the cause of, of, of that tree death.
2: Yeah. And something that causes an economic impact, though, that's the one way that it it seems to me that, you know, you can express to people that this does matter. It's having a huge impact in in not only in the timber industry, but can it uh, decrease the competitive ability of Douglas fir and native forests and things like that. So it is having an effect. It's just it's harder for people to see because they're not out there seeing huge hillsides covered with swaths of dead trees like Mm. uh, or things like you might see with sudden oak death in California or southern Oregon. Um, that drew a lot of interest and and also funding just because it was seemed so crucial to do something immediately to save these trees because they 're just outright dying and very quickly so something like Swiss needle cast is kind of a little bit more cryptic um and it's slow to develop little beasts that yes yeah, and, and, and builds up very slowly over time, and the effects on on the growth of the Douglas fir tree you might not see for thirty forty years, which is like the standard timber rotation, you might not start to see the decline until the later, later part of that.
1: And if listeners are just joining us, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. We are speaking to Patrick Bennett, who is discussing you know, his work that he's doing with, uh, with fungal genetics and, uh, and population genetics, especially uh, with Douglas fir trees. And we talked a little bit about the impacts. We talked a little bit about uh, some potential ways that we can ameliorate some of these effects, like planting different trees uh, that are really uh, still livable in that zone, uh, but I'd really like to hear on what you found in terms of your population studies.
2: Yeah, so there's a really interesting story to be told here, I think. Um, and I kind of stumbled in uh, about a decade after these findings. Um, so, so the past, past researchers who were working on this uh, used some, some sequencing technologies that were just sort of emerging in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And they seem to have discovered two um distinct groups of so so the fungus that causes Swiss natal cast, I guess I should should start with that. Oh, yeah. Uh Phaeocryptopiscoimanii, it's an ascomycete. Say that three times for uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. It's a it's a long confusing name. But uh yeah, it was it was discovered pretty early on that there were two distinct populations of this fungus that exist uh in Oregon especially. Uh and it seemed like everywhere that they looked, they would see, you know, one particular form, we'll call it a lineage. Uh, that's, that's what we're calling it now because we're not sure if it's a separate species or hmm. something like a subspecies. So it's the more um, common
1: lineage that we typically find.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's one that's much more common. It's found all over Europe, New Zealand, um, the Eastern United States, for instance, and it Pretty much, you know, this fungus exists in every Douglas fir tree, in every pretty much every needle, whether or not it's showing symptoms or whether or not you can see the fungus. And this is
1: around the world, too. It's not just an organ.
2: Right, right. So anywhere that they grow Douglas fir, um, you can find this fungus.
1: Same way we have germs um, on our hands. They're always there. Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you know, most of the time it's just a, a normal sort of innocuous member of the needle microbiome, if you will. Okay. Um, but anyway, so so... Uh, it was discovered that there were two distinct lineages, and one of them the the less common of the two, uh, which you, you might call like a cryptic lineage it 's right now they 're just called lineage one and lineage two mm. um, so lineage two is only found uh, in this narrow band along the western coast range in Oregon, where the disease epidemic is really severe, and pretty much everywhere else that we 've looked it's does not exist and even over very short geographic distances, uh, you can go from a site that has uh, equal proportion or, you know, you, you can collect a number of isolates there, genotype them, and it looks like there's equal proportions of the two lineages and you go to a site maybe 10 miles further east and you just go inland just over the to the eastern slopes of the coast range and those sites there are—it's back to just the one common lineage. And then those sites probably
1: don't show any severe decreases in foliage loss that is characteristic of Swiss needle cast disease.
2: Yeah, totally. It's—it's it's really confounded in that way that that this conducive climate and severe disease, and also um, this sort of cryptic lineage it's are hit right its stepchild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're—they're all sort of confined to this region along the the western coast range and and once you go outside of there you know all everything else appears normal you know the trees are healthy um and it's just and it's just the one common lineage so there was some question after after these early studies were completed there was some question as to whether uh lineage two could be responsible for for contributing Mm -hmm. to the epidemic whether it was more virulent um or there are ideas that if it, you know, if it fruited more prolifically, I guess you could say, um, then it's blocking more stomata and it's uh, creating more severe symptoms of the disease. And so
0: the lineage two might have been directly responsible for decreasing the photosynthesis, the photosynthetic
2: ability. Well, that's that's what the fungus does in general, mm-hmm. um, and it and it appears that the two lineages, you know, are caused the same disease. Um, no one has been able to find any difference in disease severity from, you know, there's been inoculation studies that were done and also observational studies. Um, we haven't really been able to say that one lineage is more virulent than, virulent than the other, but the way this disease works is, is that the fungus forms fruiting bodies and they come out through the stomata, so the, the pores that are used for gas exchange in the needle, and they're on the underside of Douglas fir needles. And uh, and these fruiting bodies of the fungus, uh, they block or occlude the stomata, such that gas exchange is not occurring at the normal rate, and that's pretty much how photosynthesis works. Um, you know, carbon dioxide is taken in through the stomata and fixed into sugar, so that carbon intake is really. Essential the it's stomata. Like trying to
1: wear a mask over your yeah. face. There's only so much you can do if you can't walk or
2: world. Yeah, you're not going to get much much oxygen <laughs> at that point. But
0: and it's actually going to decrease its ability to make glucose. Yeah, exactly, yeah,
2: okay. exactly. So, so the products of photosynthesis being these these complex sugars, you know, uh, large polymers of carbon, basically. Um, and so, you know, when a needle is photosynthesizing, it's got to be taking in a lot of CO two, and if its stomata are blocked for some reason. It's not taking in the amount of carbon that it needs to, um, you know, build new tissues or or just carry out basic um, cellular me- metabolic processes and things like that. And so that's really why we see um, the growth impacts is due to the reduced photosynthesis. And and when a needle, it seems like uh, studies have have suggested that when the needle switches from becoming a carbon source for the tree to becoming a carbon sink, so... When the needle is failing to take in as much carbon as it needs to sustain itself, then it's absized, actively you know pushed off of the tree, and that's what causes the needle cast symptom. So, and so
0: yeah. you, that's, that's actually the needle loss. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, so the tree absizes the foliage. and then you know not only are the um, infected needles that are there performing photosynthesis at a much lower rate than optimum, but the tree has less foliage overall. So, so photosynthetic leaf area is also reduced by the disease. So, It so, sort
0: of a, seems like a snowball process
2: Yeah, in totally. a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, and then the tree's not growing as fast, and other trees around it are growing up more quickly, like if the hemlock is starting to crowd it out, and then it's just a combination of factors that really lead to the decline of an infected Douglas fir tree in a, in a mixed stand or more like a natural stand.
1: Now, you're probably not willing to say that this lineage B is the smoking gun, being the good scientist that you are, right? You have to say within, you know, these ecological contexts and climatic things. But I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on now that we know the kind of processes that go on uh, and we know what can help this issue, which is, you know, planting different trees. Do you think that's something that land managers, whether public or private land managers, are going to take up and really – you know uh run with this idea of planting Sitka spruce or western hemlock species that aren't as economically valuable, but they will probably survive in the next you know two or three rotations a hundred years
2: yeah, I think uh just out of necessity um you know just pure economic um interest the the growers are going to start planting other types of trees uh We were just out of the stand in Tillamook earlier this week, and it the trees that they planted. 20 25 years ago are just not producing anything they're not growing they're looking really yellow and terrible these, these are Douglas fir trees that are heavily infected yeah they have a they have a big stand right there in Tillamook right next to the coast and it's really just hammered with swiss, with swiss needle cast and they can't even afford to cut the trees to replace them with some other species wow. i mean it would they'd be in the hole you know t- uh, so to speak economically if they went down there and cut all of the trees they could sell it for pulp at this point something like that so so i think there's going to be an economic push for people who are growing douglas fir really near the coast and we're talking as the crow flies you know within 10 miles of the coast 15 miles of the coast that's a really really bad swissino cast epidemic zone at least in the northern part of the state uh and throughout washington and uh so they're gonna have to plan something else and like you
1: said, from an economic sense, that's where the that's where the rubber meets the
2: road. If you can put this in economic
1: terms, that's where changes are really gonna happen
2: right and I think uh that's gonna be the thing that really uh convinces people that this that this disease matters you know beyond the the basic you know biological interest here like people you know like academics like me are interested in um from the applied side of things the foresters and the land managers and things they're they're really interested from an economic side, which is Obviously, there is understandable.
1: Yeah, this is super interesting, and I'm really glad we got to speak to you. But you mentioned something that you're an academic, but I don't think you were always an academic, were you? So, <laughs> what brought not. you into science in the first place? Let's let's take a step back in the time machine.
2: Yeah, you know, I was I was uh, in community college just after high school and taking a wide variety of classes, and took my first biology courses there, and um, you know, something that really interested me in a way, and, and I was engaged in biology in a way that I wasn't in lots of other subject areas. So I decided to, to pursue that for my bachelor's degree. And I, you know, finished prerequisites and, and uh, things like that at community college, and then transferred to uh, California State University uh, in, in Humboldt. So Humboldt State University in Northern California is where I ended up.
1: Can you describe Humboldt, like the, the city of Arcata?
2: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a rural area, that's for sure. It's uh, pretty disconnected from the rest of the state. It's about as far north as you can go and still go to a California State University <laughs> in in uh, in California. So, yeah, there's not really much around there. Very rural. Um, it is very green, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very wild and green. And there's just, you know, rivers. The tallest trees in the world exist there. Yeah. So the redwoods. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The California coast red, well, the coast <laughs> redwood, I should call it. It's not restricted to California, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Coast redwoods, uh, there and it's just a, a magnificent place. It's just so such a majestic, uh, sort of forest to be in. And I got really into, you know, spending time in the forest, looking at the trees, not just redwood trees, but looking at the trees in general for the trees and kind of seeing, you know, processes that were going on there and, and, Lots of the mentors that I had started to, you know, allow me to, to sort of pick apart these processes and see what was going on and learn about the mechanics behind it. Learn about things like forest pathology, and um, and then I had, was lucky enough to be invited to join uh, a research group uh, as an undergrad. So,
1: and then b- before this, you had volunteered a lot of your time to help a graduate student out with their field work too. So you weren't just coming at this, you know, blank slate. You had some volunteer experience doing Mm -hmm. doing some of this field work but yeah to describe this this research experience that you had
2: yeah yeah so as you mentioned originally i uh was just volunteering helping a a master student set up his project and that's really what got me into forest pathology specifically and sort of looking at a stand in a forest and and seeing dead trees or broken tops and trees or thinning foliage or whatever and 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 starting to talk about what was going on so no go ahead oh and and that really provided a, a sort of foundation for me to start research as an undergraduate.
0: One thing, uh, you mentioned interaction with teachers, and I'm wondering if these were this was a smaller university experience where you had more one-on-one interaction with professors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the main reasons that I had a really valuable uh, experience as an undergraduate uh, Humboldt today has really small class sizes, and there's there's lots of really good schools around that have small class sizes where you can sort of have one-on-one time with an instructor and join in on, you know, research field outings and things like that.
1: There's one instructor in particular that I think had a big impact on you.
2: Yeah, uh, so I was invited by uh, Dr. Patricia Searing and Mark Wilson, who are microbial ecologists, and they have, this, uh, they have this cool research group there. It's called the HEAT team. H-E-A-T is an acronym for Humboldt Extreme Acidophile Team. <laughs> and so they study uh, thermophilic and acidophilic microbes in really extreme habitats. So, Can you
1: describe this extreme habitat?
2: Yeah, okay. the habitats are very extreme. So one of their uh, study systems is Boiling Springs Lake. It's in Lassen Volcanic National Park in California. So there's lots of geothermal activity uh throughout this park. There's boiling mud pots, there's uh steam vents, there are uh hot springs and, and so Boiling Springs Lake, I guess by by area or I'm not sure if it's surface area or, or shoreline, but it's the largest hot spring in wow. North America. And I did not know that. Yeah, and you would not want to take a dip in this <laughs> in this uh hot spring. It's It's about 90 degrees Celsius near where the geothermal vent is, and that's near boiling temperatures. And so it's also – there's a lot of sulfur compounds that come in through these geothermal vents.
1: Smells delicious, doesn't
2: it? (laughs) Yes, has a very strong rotten egg sort of (laughs) smell. Hydrogen sulfide gas is forming. And and when the sulfur goes into solution in that water and in the right conditions, I'm sure temperature plays into it. It forms sulfuric acid. So the the water in this lake is – the pH is about 2.9, so very low, very acidic pH. What would that do to your skin?
1: For some of our listeners that don't <laughs> really are that aren't familiar with the pH scale,
2: well, I think if you had pure um, non-dilute pH 2.9 acid, it would definitely burn your skin. I think you could get even weaker acids than that that would burn you pretty badly. That's a very strong acid, but you would not. Tell. But <laughs> it was explained to me. You know, people originally were very worried about coming into contact with the water from Boiling Springs Lake. Um, and you definitely wouldn't want to, you know, get it on your skin. But my understanding is that it was so dilute with water that it mm-hmm. wasn't as harmful as it could have been if it was pure pH two point nine uh, sulfuric acid.
0: Well, one thing I'm wondering is, did you actually get to go and do the field work at Lassen?
2: I did, and it was it was an extremely valuable experience. We went uh, collected water, and my my research was focused particularly on the effects of leaf litter falling into the water excess or external sort of carbon inputs what they call locthanous carbon inputs into the water and how that influenced the microbial community so we collected water from boiling springs lake and we also um, took measurements like uh, temperature and ph measurements and all that kind of stuff and also collected lots of leaf litter of the different uh, uh, plant species that occurred right around the shores so there were a couple of different conifer species and there was some manzanita and things like that. And so we collected leaf litter so that we could take it back to the lab and add it to the water and measure the effect on uh, microbial abundance. And uh, also we did some sequencing to see if it changed the actual, you know, composition of the microbial community itself.
0: That's interesting. So this exposure in your undergrad to research and um, field work, was this a really important experience in your determining that you wanted to pursue graduate work?
2: Yeah, really, for, for a lot of reasons, I, I'm not sure that I would be at graduate school, especially, you know, studying in the biological sciences, if it weren't for, the, for that particular research experience. Um, it introduced me to, you know, molecular biology and just let me sort of figure that out, you know, things like PCR and sequencing uh, extracting DNA, I had never done any of those things before, except on a very you know small scale in a in a three hour lab or something like that in, in basic biology class but uh, it it also you know just opened my eyes to a whole another world of, of you know what really what biological research is all about, and it also you know this was really my first interaction with graduate students and and uh, their advisors and learning what it, what it meant to be a graduate student and things like that, and I'm not—I'm not sure that I still know really what graduate school is all about. But uh, I have a better idea than I than I would have if I had not had that research experience. It's
0: a process of figuring it out, right? Yeah, totally. We
2: we might figure it out by the end. <laughs> we might just be figuring it out before yeah. we graduate.
1: I, I think that's how it typically works out, does it not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So with that, I think we're coming to the end of our show. And we always have two traditions here on Inspiration Dissemination. And the first is we ask our guests to provide some advice. Uh, So what is your advice and who is it for?
2: I I think the best advice I can give is to uh, undergraduate students, Uh, you know, especially in the sciences. It's so important to do to do some sort of research, get your hands on something in a lab or in the field, Um, you know, talk to your professors in the, you know, if you take a course and you really like the subject material, talk to the professor, see how you can get involved. And I, 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 even think, you know, I've seen, I've seen it happen lots of times. People start out as a dishwasher in a lab or something like that, but eventually they're going to be asking you to do DNA extractions or, you know, set up experiments or, or, you know, just lend a hand setting up something and, you're going to learn a lot and then when you you know even if you're not going to graduate school when you go to apply for a job having had some sort of hands-on research experience or you know work working in a lab it's it shows that you have a lot of really valuable skills so i think that's the most important thing and i think if you are going to graduate school it's absolutely essential to have some sort of research experience when you're applying i mean if you have you know your your graduate application is going to be looked at much more carefully i think if you have some some real research experience on there
1: and you know actually I forgot to ask you something uh and I I can't believe I did but uh you know your resume now is pretty beefed up and I'm really curious to hear what you'd like to do after you finish graduate school whether it's going to be something in the public or or private sector uh, continuing with kind of um uh, force management kind of side of things or more in the applied academic side
2: yeah I really think my my wish is to be a forest pathologist a forest health specialist uh, either with the forest service or state forestry um, i think that would you know provide the and i'd like to be a researcher so i, I think i'd i'd like something that gives me uh some balance of field and lab work and uh you know fundamental and applied sorts of um you know biology and forest management and things like that and those jobs seem to be out there so i will definitely be <laughs> applying for them <laughs> if and when they're available and, and when I'm, you know, ready.
1: Nice.
0: Well, I really I uh, appreciate your advice. Um, I think that's really right on, very solid research experience is, yeah, really super important before you get to graduate school.
2: That yes. also
1: means that all you undergrads, uh, we, we love volunteers. We love oh, volunteers. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: another thing. Talk to graduate students too because grad students, especially if they have um, research funding to do their work they 're often looking to hire someone to help them you know someone to lend a hand or or you know perform some reactions or or whatever help them sample in the field and or clean dishes or clean their <laughs> dishes yeah so a- any of that is valuable so
0: hmm. all right, so another tradition we have on the song is we ask you to select a song yeah. so um, you selected waves by jay dilla um can you tell us a little bit
2: yeah so um jay dilla rest in peace is uh, widely recognized as one of the you know one of the best hip-hop producers in history and he just makes really great beats and this album donuts that came out was just full of excellent beats and this is one of them so
0: awesome nice.
1: okay well patrick we'd like to thank you for coming on the show and uh, be sure to tune in next week on Inspiration Dissemination from 6 to 8 p.m. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thanks cool. for
2: having me, and thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Yeah, thank you.